Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Welcome, what I do, to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hall, where we are talking all things of being black on many, many, many black levels. And I am here right now with a very special guest, nine-time NBA All-Star legend, and the man who was responsible for my elementary school trauma because I grew up a Detroit Pistons fan, <laughs> Mr. Robert Parrish. How you doing, sir? Jay, how you doing, man? I'm good. See, I was saving that for you. You didn't know that. See, <laughs> no, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I said, when, when, I, when I saw your name on the list, they said, um, Jay, you be okay with Robert Perry? I said, yes, yes, bring him. I've been waiting on this my whole life, Mr. Robert Perry. Uh, how you doing, sir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how you doing today, good sir? I'm all good. Thanks for asking. That's good. That's good. We have to ask that these days. First, one thing that stood out to me the first with you all the time was Chief. What's the origin of that name? Everyone always called you the Chief, even though you was on a team with Legends, with Larry Bird and Kevin Kelly, but you was the Chief. Uh, a teammate of mine, Cedric Maxwell. Cornbread. Yeah, Cornbread Maxwell. And that nickname stuck. The genesis of it is a character in the movie One Flew the Cuckoo Nest, uh, the Chief in that movie. Didn't say a lot. Oh, he said nothing at all. So when I first came to the Celtics, I wasn't doing a lot of talking. I was just sit back observing and trying to uh, get a feel for the team in the locker room. And so uh, after Cedric saw the movie, he started saying that I had the same demeanor as the character, the chief in the movie. Didn't say a lot, just watch and observe and kept his uh, remarks and comments to himself. Was that something you picked up in your game or that was just your personality to kind of be this silent individual? Well, I'm not a big communicator, that's for sure, but <laughs> I, I uh, definitely uh, like to observe. I like watching people uh, watch their reaction and interactions, so I definitely uh, don't do a lot of talking by nature. Yeah, I, I can understand that because even though this is like what I do for a living, when I when the mic is off, I probably say like two words for the rest of the day. Yeah. So I definitely understand that. <laughs> yeah, it works out for me because my girl is a talker, so it works for me. I don't have to say a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All I got to do is acknowledge Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it true that I heard growing up you was not a fan of basketball at all? No. Uh, me and my neighbors, kids I grew up with, we never played uh, basketball. We played baseball, football, and we ran track. Those were the three sports. No basketball until junior high school. And it showed, too. <laughs> it showed. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, you say that before the average height brothers like myself who was trying to play basketball, I mean, were you always tall? I mean, how, how did that, how do you even go in that direction of a, of a sport that you're not that interested in? I uh, had a growth spurt after graduating from elementary school. Uh, the seventh through the 10th grade, 
I had like a every summer three to four inch growth spurt every summer for like three, three and a half, four years, which was driving my parents insane because they couldn't keep up with my height in terms of clothing me. So, uh, and so when I, when I went to uh, the seventh grade, I was already six foot five in the seventh grade. And so the junior high school coach said that you should try basketball because you're that tall for a reason. And so after my first week of practice, I told I went to the to the coach and told him, whatever you think you saw in me, I do not see it. Because oh, it was not pretty. Uh, my inability to understand the game and I reflexes coordination was non existent. When would you say it started to click for you? The the end of the eighth grade, I remember uh funny story about how that whole double zero came about when the coach gave out the jerseys for the starting five, the second unit, got their jersey second. And so everybody got a jersey except for me and the last jersey that was left was uh double zero. And my teammates and the coaches staff said it was appropriate uh having their number double zero because I was the worst player on the team at the time. And so that's how that whole double zero started uh, with my career and following me throughout my athletic career. But to, to get back to what we were talking before about when everything clicked for me basketball-wise, was the end of my end of eighth grade, my second year in junior high school. Uh, I remember I was able to catch a pass without fumbling it. I was able to take a couple of dribbles without kicking it out of bounds or dribbling it off my, off my foot. So that's when it started to click and register just Maybe something to this basketball, all that hard work and sacrifice starting to uh, work for me. So I see some promise. Now, when you were coming up, that's when it, we had the ABA and we had the NBA. And to a lot of people in conversation, the ABA was somewhat considered like the black man's league. But I, I heard you in an interview say that you wanted to go to the NBA or even though you had offers to go to the ABA, you wanted to go to the NBA. Any reason for that? Did you just feel like you were just a better league or what was it for you? Well, my reason for choosing the NBA over the ABA, two reasons. Uh, first one, I thought the ABA had a short shelf life. I didn't think it was going to be around for very long. And the, uh, the first reason was the competition. I thought it was better competition, uh, more big guys for me to play against to uh, improve and, and uh, further my career. So those were the two reasons I favored the NBA over the ABA. That's interesting. Now, was it a culture shock for you to go from Louisiana, where you're born and raised, to Golden State, California, Bay Area? I got shocked uh, twice, actually, uh, being drafted by the Golden State Warriors. The first one was that whole gay, lesbian, transgender community, which has a, a, a large following in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the second shock eye-opener was I wasn't the best player on the basketball floor anymore. Now, you try a humbling experience. Oh, that was humbling for me. And I'm accustomed, I was accustomed to being the best player on the floor. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm not the best player. There are other All-Stars, other All-Americans, All-States, you know, All-Conference, All-Division players, just like I am. So that was humbling and an eye-opener. And let, let me know that I got a lot of work to do. Yeah, because I read in college you were averaging like 21 points a game. 
And so when you got to the NBA, you immediately realized, like, that was... Oh, it was good for college. You know, I was averaging 21 and, and 15 in college, which was which are great stats. But my, the point I was trying to, trying to make to you, Jay, is I wasn't the best player on the floor anymore. Mm. I was just another good player. Actually, <laughs> I would say I was okay because the other guys were better than I was. And so it was... It was humbling, for lack of a better word. It was a humbling experience. That first year, my rookie year, was humbling. I ate a lot of humble pie, just trying to feel like I belonged. Because I always feel like I was I was having to catch up. Because I because I got started late, I thought that was one of the reasons why my, my game took a little longer to develop and mature. Because I got a late start playing basketball. Now, how was those first few years at Golden State? Like, did you feel like your game was developing really good or did you struggle until you got to Boston? I struggled my, my rookie year, as I said before, because uh, uh, guys were just better than I was in the physicality of the game. The game was a lot faster. I have to adjust to that. Plus, I wasn't a, a, a big man. I was a tall man, but I only weighed 220, seven feet at 220, so I was very thin and, and wasn't very strong, so I had to get stronger. And my, my game, my basketball, the offensive part of my game had to improve and get better because I just couldn't rely on that jump shot anymore. Had to mix it up. Had to keep the defense off balance. And that was an adjustment for me because normally I just try and shoot over someone. And on the pro level, you just can't do that. You're going to eat a lot of spalding if you just become predictable. When you went to Boston, did you feel any pressure playing center? Under the great rest in peace who just passed Bill Russell? I mean, that position, playing for that legendary franchise? Actually, uh, I looked at it as more of an honor. Only I think about the, the two previous uh, great centers before me, my predecessors, Bill Russell and Dave Cowens. So I, I was very proud to follow in their footsteps. And like I said, I never looked at it as pressure following those great players. I looked at it just carrying the torch. Picking up the baton, if you will, you know, trying to not disappoint at that position. Now, I'm not going to lie. This pains me to ask. But when did you realize when you were in Boston that the team was getting good and you had something special? Oh, I knew it in training camp. I knew right away that if we checked our egos at the door and, and played for the Celtics, the name on the front of the jerseys and not the name on the back of the jerseys, we could be a special team. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. No one was playing for themselves. We was all playing for the team. And also, I think we had the right coach at, at that time, too, and uh, Coach Bill Fitch. I always felt like he instilled that mental toughness uh, that, the, that the team needed and, and the fitness. I was in the best shape of my life uh, under Coach Fitch, and I think that's one of the reasons why my, my game catapulted to another level because my fitness uh, was allowed me to sustain uh, my play and continue to play consistently at, 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 at the level that I wanted to be, and I could continue to be uh, to play with that aggressive energy without fatigue being a deterrent. Yeah, it's interesting when you said earlier that you were struggling to, like, you know, run down the court and pick up because one thing I remember for someone of your height, you used to get down court extremely fast during the fast break, especially against my beloved Pistons. Used to be, we used to be like, yo, where Parrish come from? You know what I'm saying? Like, where, where he come from? Now, we both know Lambeer is not the fastest athlete <laughs> we ever seen. Before. It didn't require that much effort to beat him down the floor. <laughs> but I, that's, that's – uh, 
get back over on topic, that's something that uh, not only myself, but my teammates pride ourselves on. Uh, that's one of the reasons why during our premium years, we we were able to jump out to such early leads on our division and our conference because of the fitness. We get a 9, 10, 11 game cushion uh, on our uh, opponents. And then every team goes through those low periods. So when we went through the low periods, we still had like a five or six game cushion. So we can afford to drop two or three games while we struggle to try to figure out and fix what's got us out of sync. When you see that, and you you guys back then were so physical. Is it something that you see it made the game better? Or when you look at the game now and you see it's less physical, they can barely even touch each other now without it being called a foul. Do you see that as a, as a negative now or a negative back then, or that's just how the game was played? Uh, it, it was good for uh, my era, the physicality of it, uh, the aggressiveness that we show towards one another, it works. It worked for that era. But I, I like the the uh the way the commissioner and his associates have pretty much legislated all of the physicality uh out of the game, which I think is is, uh, is a good thing in this context that less fights. There are no more fights. And I think fighting has no place in, in the game of, of basketball. And but when you that when you got men being that physical and aggressive with one another, eventually a fight is going to break out because everybody has a breaking point. So I do like the fact that the game is not as physical. It flows more. There are less stoppage because they're calling fouls and uh, slowing the game down. And the coaches let the players play more. The three-point shooting has helped offensively, putting more points on the boards. And everybody loves to watch offense. So I think that's one of the reasons why the game is has increased in popularity. It's fun to watch today's game. It's fun to watch when it's played right. And I think the, the Golden State Warriors were uh, an example of how uh, basketball should be played. And that's uh, they play hard, they play smart, and they play together. And I think that's one of the reasons why they are the champions. Because all the champions in the past uh, mirrors uh, the Bill Russell Celtics. Because that's how they was able to establish dominance and excellence over the league. They played hard, they played smart, and they played together. And they had Bill Russell, by the way. And that never hurts. And I think all the champions after them played similar or exact basketball in terms of playing together, playing smart, and playing hard. You're going to be more successful than not using that formula. Now, I feel like I might know this answer, but I have to ask. You have four rings, four. Which championship ring or period would you say was the sweetest one, the sweetest victory for you as a player? Oh, the first one, no doubt. That first one. Because for me, it was proving my doubters, my critics, the naysayers wrong. Everything they said about my career, uh, I use it as ammunition, as fuel, as motivation to try to prove them wrong. When they said I wasn't going to be an all-star or championship center uh, because I was too little and didn't have the, the, the strength or the toughness to compete at that position. And so that first championship was like validation, along with the first All-Star game was validation. Being one of the best in my position was another, I told you so without having to say, I told you so. So when, whenever my naysayers is landed on real ticket with the criticism, I always use it as ammunition. And, and that's, that's, that's an invaluable lesson that Mr. Russell, told me we was having uh, 
conversation he and I, and he was talking about the life in, in Boston uh, as a black athlete. And he was saying that when he was when the fans was yelling all the obscenities and and uh, not nice not nice things to him, he used it as ammunition, as motivation to like prove prove them wrong or to shut them up or, or to make them or, or to make them uh, say. Uh, un- less unflattering things to him because of, of their success. And that that's a philosophy that I had always subscribed to. Best way to shit up your critics, prove them wrong. I was going to ask you about that later, but since you brought it up, when you think about Bill Russell's legacy, what comes to your mind from what you know of the man? Oh, uh, the obvious his accomplishments on the basketball floor, you know, championships in high school, back-to-back championships in college, eight championships, back-to-back in a row before they lost, you know, just what he did was just extraordinary. But what, what most impressed me about Mr. Russell's uh, life and, and legacy is what he did off the uh, basketball court. You know, he fought against injustice and, and bigotry and, and prejudice. He believed that everybody should be treated fairly and equally. Uh, I definitely think that he, he doesn't get enough credit for uh, his civil rights fight and and determination. And he used his platform uh, in a very positive way, I, I thought, because of who he was. His voice carried weight, and he fought and, and talked and walked and protested. You know, so all the minorities, including women too, in my opinion, most of us have a better life for what uh, Mr. Russell and his contemporaries fought for and, and believed in and would not accept anything less than what's right and what's appropriate and what should be done. So I am very proud to have met the man and, and sit down and had a conversation with him. I think I was a better person for it after the conversations with him. Did you, as a black man, feel that type of, any type of racial tension when you were in the city of Boston playing basketball for them? No, I didn't feel any racial tension directed at me, Jay, per se, but I've seen it. Other blacks, Hispanics, Asian people, I've definitely seen it. It wasn't directed at me, and I think mainly because of my relationship with the Boston Celtics. None of, none of the hostility and intolerance was directed at me personally, but I certainly have witnessed it, and it is ugly. We need to do better. You know, all of us should uh, remember... Rodney King, he said it best. Why can't we all just get along? And that is so true and profound. We need to do better as people. Yeah, when I think about Bill Russell, I I think about the times where I feel like I can't take it and I feel, you know, the pressures that I deal with every day. And he's one of those individuals that I always thought about, like, but look what he had to deal with. You know, look what how he put on his pants every day and how he went to work every day, you know. What, what would be something that you would say when it comes to Bill Russell that you knew in conversation that all of us probably could learn in our day-to-day, not just in pro sports, but in our life when we're dealing with the world? Well, I, I, I would say what, uh, Mr. Russell is a great example of patience and tolerance and understanding. And you think about it, he had that attitude, that mindset on some very severe and harsh conditions and circumstances. Because back then, they didn't treat minorities fairly at all. You know, we was lower than a second-class citizen. 
you know, no respect, no regard at all for for us as as people. So for him to stay positive and and um and beat that drum for equality for all and and so I think it just speaks volume about the man character and considering what he had to endure, you know, he should he should be commended for uh achieving excellence, keeping his head up, staying positive, staying strong and persevered through all of that adversity and animosity. Man. So if he could do what he did under those conditions, we should be able to tolerate, I won't say uh, as bad conditions, but some some uncomfortable positions today because we still don't treat each other right. Well, I'm speaking of we as people. We got a long ways to go in terms of how we treat one another. And that's across the board, too. All races need to do better. Now, Chief, I, I told you, I, I grew up watching you, you know, as a kid and having my heart broken, you know, sometimes until we finally got over the hump. And I saw something recently with you that I never thought I'd imagine. And that was you and former L.A. Lakers Michael Cooper on a podcast together laughing. And for those of us that was around during that Lakers-Celtic rivalry, there's no way I would imagine you two sharing a laugh. Can you describe just how that Laker rivalry was back then and how rivalries was in the, in the game and why you were able to have that transition even now to, to be able to laugh with Michael Cooper? Well, I'm going to answer your last question first. Both of our careers are done now, so we have buried the hatchet. <laughs> uh there's no longer any animosity between the two teams. There's less dislike for one another. So uh, to, to answer your, your original question, that rivalry uh, between the Lakers and, and the Celtics started with uh, Bill Russell and, and Will Chamberlain. Uh, Russell with the Celtics and Chamberlain with the 76ers. And that rivalry continued should I say it, it was reignited when Wilt got traded to the Lakers. And then it was a big rivalry with the Lakers and the, and the Celtics, and they was going back and forth uh, trying to establish dominance and excellence over the league. And then after that, Magic and Larry picked up the torch, and the rivalry stayed strong and, and, and relevant through their, throughout their careers. So the, the, the intensity, uh, the dislike, the name-calling, trying to uh, establish dominance and having bragging rights over the league and, and over the dreaded Lakers continued throughout all of our careers. And, and I do like the fact that now that we are all retired now, we get along better. Yeah, we we even smiling at one another now. We're not going out to dinner or nothing like that, but <laughs> we are cordial to one another. <laughs> I like that. Same thing with those hated Detroit Pistons of yours, too. <laughs> yeah, we get along now. We It's like them passionately. Now, when I see uh, some of the bad boys, it's all good now. <laughs> I like that. We all done playing basketball. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say, even though I saw you and Michael Cooper share the lab, you two were still taking jabs at each other. So the rivalry was still kind of there, just verbal. Oh, you oh, you know that the trash talking is never gonna <laughs> cease. Oh, absolutely. Same thing with like I said with our piston. When I see Isaiah, we still talk trash to each other. Rick Mahorn, we still talking <laughs> trash to one another. So I like that. No question. John Sally, he's another trash talker. But at least 
we speaking and we get along now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if if my idols can um you know uh, move on, I, I guess as a fan, I should too, sir. So it was you know I like to say thank you you know for coming on the show and thank you for being a good citizen, sir chief. Well, thank you, uh, Jay, for having me on your show. It was an honor and a privilege. Enjoy talking to you. You made it easy and made it relaxing for me, so I appreciate that. And uh, continue success to you going forward. Thank you very much, good sir. This has been the History of Being Black podcast. I am Jay Hall. It's been an honor. I'm, I, I can tell my therapist I am over certain rivalries as a kid. You know, mark this on my list. Sitting here talking to Mr. Sir Chief Robert Page. It's been an honor again. I appreciate you as usual. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Make sure you leave some comments under our IG on the History of Being Black podcast. As usual, be blessed with successful. We'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.